For those without letters on your phone numbers for whatever, that's 866-658-4465. Call that number, you'll get a recording, you leave a message there for me. Make your question first and your details second, and know what you're going to say before you call, and your call will go much better. Find a quiet place, make sure there's some bars on your cell phone when you make that call. If you don't hear your call within about two weeks, just accept that due to call volume, your call is probably not getting on the air, and you can recall in and try again. I'm sorry, I can only put so many calls on the air, and these shows are now going about two hours. With that, I can't really put many more on the air. Uh, before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. Everything you need to live that tactical lifestyle. Tactical stuff like the titanium awesome man spork. Yes, the titanium spork. Check that thing out over there. Magpul ba uh, magazines, uh, Maxpedition bags, everything you can think of, you'll find it at Sawtooth Tactical. MSB members, remember, you do get a discount at Sawtooth Tactical. Log into the MSB, click on your benefits section before you buy there, and get the discount code. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. If you want to learn how to make knives, KnifeKits.com is a place to go. Easy to assemble, kit knives, simple handle material, Books, DVDs, etc. to teach you what you need to do to do the basic fit and finish work. Kydex kits, uh, leather supplies, everything you need to make sheaths. It's all there, and it's all available in really simplistic kit form for those that want that. Master bladesmiths, you want buffalo horn, mammoth tusk for handle material, Damascus steel, or any type of exotic steel or material you can think of. If it's available, they probably have it. And additionally, KnifeKits.com provides a discount to member support brigade members. So again, if you're going to buy from them and you're part of the MSB, log into your account and get the discount code to the benefits section before you do. Next up today, I want to remind you guys about the relaunch of 13skills.com. The site is so much better, and we're working to make it even better. Check it out today, 13skills.com, and get over there, and there's still plenty of time this year to improve your skills in the year 2013. Somebody emailed me and said, please tell me that in 2014... 13 skills won't go away since it was 13 and 13. It won't go away. 13 skills will be 13 skills forever. And next year we will be doing the 13 and 14 challenge. And there will always be the people that say, why is it 13? And the people that were here in the beginning will know. 13skills.com. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. And you can find out more by going to thesurvivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members or the Member Support Brigade banner. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, uh, along with first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you qualify for a service discount. Email me with service discount in the subject line. And uh, with one or two sentences, tell me about your service, who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. I'll email you back a discount code. You must do this before 
not after you join. If you're already a member, you want that discount, keep it on your renewal date. Talk to me about it around renewal time, and we'll make sure you get the discount on renewal. All right, with uh, that wrapped up, I want to move into our segment we started doing. I really like it. I think most of the feedback I've heard has been positive. We're doing a real quick history segment in every show based on the episode number, what happened that year. Today is 1206. What happened in 1206? Well, the rise of somebody almost everybody on the planet has heard of. Uh, Timujin. Timujin. You've heard of him? No? Ah. But in 1206, he is proclaimed Genghis Khan of the Mongol people, founding the Mongol Empire. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him in a second, but I want to tell you about what's going on over in you know the English-speaking world at the time. Sugar, an import from the Muslim world, is mentioned for the first time in a royal English account. Almonds, cinnamon, ginger, and nutmeg are also imported for royal banquets. So the aristocracy is fe feasting. Everything is well and good in Europe and Eurasia. And everybody's happy, and the sugar's flowing, and almonds and cinnamon are being passed around, and the good life is being enjoyed. But the Khan has risen. I'll tell you a little bit about Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan uh, was born about 1162, died around August 1227, so his estimated age was 65. Hey, didn't everybody die at like 30 back then? Told you guys it's not the case. Uh, he was the founder and the great Khan of the Mongol Empire, which became the largest continuous e empire in the history after his demise. He came to power by uniting many of the Mongol tribes of Northeast Asia. After founding the Mongol Empire and being proclaimed Genghis Khan, he started the Mongol invasions that resulted in the conquest of most of Eurasia. These included rage or invasions uh, on many locations. These campaigns were often accompanied by wholesale massacres of the civilian population. Nice guy, this, this king is gone. Especially in the Kashmazir uh, controlled lands. By the end of his life, the Mongol Empire occupied a substantial portion of Central Asia and China. So while we always think of Genghis as the conqueror, but he really only conquered Asia and China. That's a pretty big deal, but I mean, we think of the, 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 the Mongol hordes, you know, riding across into the east. He was dead by then. I don't know if most people realize that. Before Genghis Khan died, he assigned Oji Khan as his successor, split his empire into Klahanestes, which must mean like sub-regions or something like that, among his sons and grandsons. He died in 1227 after feeding the western Zia. He was buried in an unmarked grave somewhere in Mongolia at an unknown location. Why would you do that? So nobody digs you up and desecrates your body. So Genghis Khan was buried in an unmarked grave by people that liked him. Think about that. His descendants went on to stretch the Mongol Empire, empire across Eurasia by conquering and creating vassal states out of the modern-day China, Korea, and the Caucasus, Central Asian countries, and substantial portions of modern Eastern Europe, Russia, and the Middle East. Many of these invasions repeated the earlier large-scale slaughters of local populations, so they continued to slaughter. There's one little thing I want to point out that will make you think about modern-day times a little differently again with looking at this. There was a guy named Mukali. Now, he was under Khan in the army. He was basically a general. Let's call him that. Of the left wing of the newly reorganized Mongol army, 
and he was granted immunity for up to nine breaches of the law. <laughs> so when you rise to power, you just get the freedom to break the law. That's just basically what, what that says. So Genghis got in control and said, we have these laws within our own. I mean, we're going to go out and slaughter all these people. We're going to have our laws. But, uh, yeah, you're the head of the left-wing group of army. Yeah, you can, you can have nine breaches. <laughs> sounds, sounds, you know, minus the riding and, and raping and pillaging on horseback, uh, which, by the way, these guys had a lot more courage than our clowns in the, in the Congress and Senate do. They, they would never do it that way. They do it by the use of others' force. Um, but uh, sounds a lot like Congress, doesn't it? We'll just pass a law that says this law doesn't apply to us. The more things uh, change, the more they stay the same. Just uh, three real quick announcements. One, very exciting. I promised and teased some people on the blog yesterday with some comments about uh, a new expert council member. Uh, I no longer have Joe No Buddy on the expert council. I never hear from him. I have to go through an intermediary, and I don't know who he is. I think he's a good guy. If he ever wants to come on for an interview again, I'll certainly do that. Uh, but I have sent one or two questions out that I've never forgotten anything back from. I don't know if there's some confusion or something, but it just doesn't seem like a really good fit. And it seemed to me like we could have somebody fill that role who uh, is much more um, connected to us, uh, a good personal friend of mine. And the only reason I hadn't asked him till now is I know his time commitments are insane like mine are, and I didn't know if he would be willing to put the time into it, but he was happy to do it when I explained to him how it would work. And, of course, I'm talking about Brian Black of ITS Tactical. So going forward from here, uh, the same way you make calls for other expert council members, which is call in the question. Don't write in the question. Call in the question to the, the think line. Immediately after you do so, email me and, and put, you know, uh, expert council call on the subject line. Uh, my email is jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com. And then just say, Jack, I just called in a question for Brian Black about XYZ from number whatever your number is. That way I'll know to go dig your call out of the queue and it won't get lost in the call volume. So that's the way you do that. And Brian Black from ITS Tactical, who is just a phenomenal guy with an amazing website and community that he's built. We've worked together for about four-ish years now. Um, we really are great friends. We spend a lot of time together. And I think it's a lot better of a person to talk about uh, things like escape and evasion, things like you know, tactical bug out stuff. Uh, anything you can think of. His, he has great videos on things like escaping from zip ties, knot tying, lock picking, you name it. This guy's done it. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing person to have on the council. If you've never been to the ITS tactical website, I recommend you check it out today and, uh, love to get some calls in next week for Brian so we can get him off to a good start. Uh, next up, real quick, I want to remind, let everybody know that maybe didn't see it on the blog. I wrote an article called What is a Paleo Diet? It's not on my site. It's on Josiah Wallingford's site, uh, my intern, Brink of Freedom. There will be a link in today's show notes for it. I'm not going to say much about it other than I think there's just a ton of confusion over what is and isn't a paleo diet. Uh, it really has nothing to do with my interview with Sally Fallon, for those that heard that little piece of drama. Um, it was more the questions that came after that. Like, well, I thought this, and I thought that, and I'm not sure. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to put the art together an article. And I wrote an article that really could be a short ebook. It's It's that detailed. Um, explaining the concept 
of paleo because that's what paleo really is. It's a concept. It's not a paleo diet. It's a paleo concept used to derive a diet, and many different people derive many different, you know, with subtle differences in that diet from that concept. And if you want to know more about paleo and you want to be able to do it in a way that works for you, check out the article. It's at brinkoffreedom.net. It's currently the, the hottest trending article over there at that new really awesome site Josiah has built. But there will be a link in today's show notes. Just look for it. It says, what is a paleo diet? Last, before I take a call, real quick, I'm going to tell you that you're going to probably hear some things about Mulligan Mint today, maybe over the weekend or Monday. And it might sound bad at first. It's not bad. It's actually the best news that you could get, but it's going to sound bad. I can't say anything more than that. I sat down with Rob Gray yesterday. I talked to him for about two hours at my house. He came out to me. He brought me samples of the new Sentinel Paradigms that are available. And uh, I'll be doing a video next week showing you those dimes. And they're, they're awesome, okay? And then all I'm going to say right now is the Mint will be still operating next week, the following week, the week after that, the week after that. Stuff is still going to be shipped. But they're making a strategic decision. You can probably figure out what that is. Um, and uh, it's going to be in their best interest, uh, the best interest of their investors, the best interest of their customers, the best interest of their employees, and they have a very solid plan to do it, and they're doing something I think they should have done a long time ago. I'm just going to put it this way. They're about to go on the offense, and uh, it's about time. It's about time, and they have a very credible way to do so. And I know for a fact that they are working with the best people they could be in Dallas-Fort Worth. When everything's publicly released, I will come back and tell you their side of the story and what I know for those that want to know it and where it's going and what's happening next. I can't do that right now. I'm just telling you, if you hear something that sounds bad, don't freak out. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call. Hey, Jack, this is John in Kentucky again. Um, just wanted to uh, make a couple comments about the benefits that I've seen from uh, starting a little little backyard chicken project, um, and I appreciate the uh, encouragement in many regards uh, from you on the show, but particularly the show where you talked about uh, being a duocracy. And um, anyway, that, that kind of – I've been thinking about chickens for about six months, and uh, – Went and uh, visited some friends who have chickens, and I guess that gave me a little confidence to give it a try. And uh, so we just got the birds, but there have been a variety of benefits, uh, starting with my, my 10-year-old has helped me build the coop, and so he's gotten to uh, learn how to use a drill and talked about uh, some safety rules of power saws, and he's done some hammering. And my 3-year-old has done painting. And um, the 10-year-old has uh, got all kinds of business uh, things swirling around in his head regarding uh, selling eggs to neighbors. So that's been positive for the kids. Um, it's uh, prompted discussions about where food comes from. Um, and it's been a, an opportunity to, to meet some neighbors that we didn't know and uh, have some, some fun conversation with, na- with neighbors. So anyway, even if the whole thing... Uh, you know, fails for whatever reason, if the chickens all get eaten by a predator or whatever, we've seen a, a lot of benefits already, and, and just the uh, weekend project of getting things together and getting started has uh, been beneficial for, for me and for my family. So anyway, I just want to encourage folks out there, if you're thinking about uh, projects, uh, you know, what's the worst that can go wrong with the chickens? I guess, you know, we can sell them on Craigslist or we can eat them. Um, we can sell the coops. So, you know, what's the downside? And uh, if you can do it, 
uh, then give it a shot. You might end up having a lot of fun, and uh, it's, it's been exciting so far. So I love the show, and I appreciate uh, what you're doing and the encouragement for people to get out there and, and do things. Take care. You know, I, I think that's awesome, and it's something maybe that when we talk about livestock, whether it's chickens or geese or, or you know rabbits or anything like that, maybe we need to think more about the benefits to our homes, our homesteads, our families, um, than we do with the, just the direct uh, uh, rewards. I have to say that caring for animals has been very good for me. Uh, as part of you know being here on this piece of property and having to have left behind, you know, I made a decision last year to to come back to Texas. Uh, I wanted to in some ways, but in some ways I didn't. I, you know, it was my wife really had a hard time being that far away from her family, and as a good husband, I decided that I would find a way to enjoy making the move, and. It was hard, and we looked for about nine months to find a place that would work for us. And this during that time, we had incredible results with our gardens and all the stuff we had put in place um, in Arkansas. And coming here was starting from a blank slate, and not everything's gone really well this year, but the animals have had a huge positive impact uh, as far as what they've produced for us. So they've given us eggs. And the geese, even though we lost some to a predator, uh, we have this established flock of beautiful animals now that follow me around and talk to me and uh, are just engaging. And they'll produce for us eggs next year, and we'll expand that flock. And some of them will be a meat animals. And you know, we've, we have you know 45 meat chickens out right now. As long as the freaking hawk I saw today doesn't get any of them today, we'll have that many tomorrow. And We'll be making them part of our workshop and feeding them the students. So that's all direct. But indirect, I have to say, the caring for these animals. You know, I get up earlier than I did before because I've got to go out there and open the chicken coop and let them out. And, you know, I could kick my intern in the ass and tell him, hey, man, be up by 7. And if he is, he does it. And he's not always up at 7. I'm not always up at 7. Sometimes I'm up at 6.30. Sometimes I'm up at 8. Um but one way or another, usually I'm laying in bed, I wake up, so it's kind of light outside, whatever time it is, I get my ass up and I go out there, not because I have to, because I actually enjoy the experience. I you know, hit the coffee button on the coffee maker, brew up a cup of coffee, take the dogs out for their morning pee, and then take the dogs out with me so they get more and more you know, accustomed to the birds, especially Charlie the pup. And I, you know, I'm out there with the chickens and the geese, and you open the thing and they're all happy to come out in the morning and they all yell at you and you know if you dump their water because they've pooped in it they, the geese scream at you like what are you doing man what are you doing so I don't have the kids anymore but I still have that interaction and I think it's and I talk about this in my article on paleo diets that it's not just about the food it's about de-stressing and that for me these are very distressing things I've also had to do a lot of construction projects and things like that to accommodate the animals. And when you have animals that need something, you get it done. You don't put it off. So you get more experience with construction and building and things like that. Uh, you certainly start to think entrepreneurial if you're a kid and you're realizing, hey, all this stuff just shows up once you have these things. These eggs show up. So I think it's a huge thing that we need to think more about as preppers as to what advantages having things as simple as a chicken bring into our lives beyond eggs and meat uh, and fertilizer. 
And an animal that if you harness its energy probably does a lot of work for you. Those are all great. We don't need to turn away from those, but when you've got kids thinking about selling eggs, let me tell you something. If that kid never actually sells a single egg, I hope he does, but or doesn't, it doesn't really matter. The fact that they're thinking that way is, is at a young age is incredibly important. That mindset of entrepreneurialism is what drives success in life. And the earlier you get them thinking that way, the better. The fact that they've seen it done. So now, like you said, you have, the callers that I have confidence to do it, because we went somewhere where somebody else had chickens. It seems intimidating. You go somewhere where somebody has chickens, and you go, well, I can do that. They have a shed, a place to walk around. You feed them, give them water, they give you eggs. That's it. Because that's all it is, but it feels like a much bigger thing. And I'll tell you, you probably will lose some birds. You know, we have. Um, we uh, we lost one. We don't know what happened to her. I, I think some of the a worker, a contractor I had here killed her. Some kind of mean-ass, stupid thing. Because we found her under a bucket weeks after she disappeared. And I just can't see how that bird managed to get herself under that bucket and kill herself. But I don't know. We had one. Charlie finally broke and killed one. You know, we worked really hard with him, and he was doing really good. And we came in the backyard, and there were feathers everywhere, a dead chicken. So, you know, we've had losses like that. We've lost some geese to we really don't know what. It's very odd to me to lose geese once they were fully grown, and they pretty much were. Um, what I've learned this year with Toulouse is they're just not aggressive the way Asians and Africans are. And while that was part of my decision, I didn't really think about how that plays out with aggression toward other animals. And I can tell you that, you know, you get a flock of African geese, you're not having a lot of problems with predators. Uh, but with these uh, with these, these Toulouse geese, they're a little smaller and a little bit gentler animals, and, uh, and you, you, you definitely can. So I've learned a lot. I've had a lot of de-stressing. I've had a lot of experience gained. And I have a really active portion of my life because of this um, and that's all a benefit beyond eggs and meat and if you have kiddos then you're, you're engaging that young mind to think differently awesome call, thanks for pointing it out you almost have me wanting to do a show the multiple benefits of chickens beyond eggs and meat I mean that's, that's how deep you have me thinking right now so thank you for that and uh, if others, if you've had similar experiences to this with your livestock and you have similar feelings about it Let us know what you're thinking. Call in, uh, not call in, you, uh, you can, but I'm saying go to the uh, episode today, 1206, and leave us a comment. Just the survivalpodcast.com and look for episode 1206. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Jake up in Minnesota. I got an expert counsel question for Ben up in Vermont. Or for you, uh, I've got access to a ton of goose carcasses over the course of this fall. My brother does a lot of hunting, and, uh, you know, they just cut the breasts off and then throw the rest of the animal away. And I just think I should be burying that in front of or behind in my hugel beds or in places where I hope to have a garden in the future. And so my question for you is, one, would you do it? You know, my idea is just build a big trench or dig a big trench, and then every, when I get some carcasses, throw them in there and uh, just cover them up with soil. And my question would be, how deep would you do that? Would you do it? If not, if you wouldn't do it, what would you do with those to improve soil fertility in uh, in a place where you're hoping to establish a garden or an established, you know, raised beds and uh, 
woody beds on contour. I've got two big woody beds on contour and three three by eight uh, raised beds and a small surrounding garden. It has been a great success thanks to you, and I hope to expand that in future years. Thanks a lot, guys. Um, could you bury a bunch of goose carcasses, and would that improve the fertility of soil? Probably, yeah. Um, I'd say you need at least eight inches of soil to make sure you don't end up with a bunch of stink, assuming nothing digs it up. If you'd bury them too deep, then you get to a point where can the plants really access that? Um, and I'm not going to say anything more about using that part of the goose directly as as fertilizer, because I see it as a tremendous waste. Um. I understand why hunters that are successful goose hunters would do this, I guess, but I, I think it's just a massive, massive waste. Uh, what I would do, if I had that much available goose, thighs, legs, and wings, I would ask that they get that to me quickly, keep it cool, and I would skin it. Uh, I would debone the meat, and I would use that meat, and I would probably, because of the way you're going to get it like like that, it's going to be difficult to try to you know keep the skin on and use it and roast it and things like that. I would just go ahead and just pull the skin off of it and debone the meat, and I would probably get myself a good recipe, and I would start making goose sausage, and I would tell those boys to bring me as much of that as they can. Burying protein of the quality of a goose, and where you're at, they're probably Canadian geese, and you're talking about rather large birds, 12-ish, 14-ish pound birds. Um, you're looking at just from the legs and the thighs uh, and, and maybe like the back meat and all that you can just cut off of that bird really easily, a good 3-ish to 4-ish pounds. And I, what amount of tomatoes do you need to grow for the nutrient value of, of that meat? I actually find this practice incredibly wasteful. I know lots of people doing it, and I understand just pulling the breast out of a dove. Um, and I'm not saying anything bad about the person doing it. We all do what we, we can with the time that we have, and we all do what we think is best for ourselves. And I, I don't see, like, you know, you're not the reason kids are starving in Africa or something because you're doing this, but... That resource is so incredibly valuable. I would also be taking all of those bones uh, after I, you know, just pull the skin off because, like I said, they've they've already kind of raped the carcass by by doing it the way they're doing it. Um, just pull the skin off, get your bones with whatever meat's left on them, and I would be making bone stock out of that from goose. Oh my God, the fat, the mineral content, the quality of that, and then. When you just have bones that have been boiled to the point where they're soft, if you don't have a dog that wants to eat them, and folks, when you make bone stock, you can give that bone to a dog. Um, don't give them a giant pile at once, but give them a little bit here and there. It's, they'll handle it. It's not going to get caught in their throat. I mean, dogs eat bones in the wild. That's what they do. The danger in giving a dog a cooked bone is it becomes crystallized and jagged and sharp. And when they crack it, those sharp shards can get stuck in their throat and cause some problems. When you make bone stock, this is not a problem. You, when you're done with especially poultry bone stock, you can pick the bones up and they're, they're flexible. You can break them with your fingers. Um, I'd be making bone stock. And then if I had those bones and I didn't want to feed them to my dog or something, then I would be using the bones. And I would be putting that into compost for fertility. 
for what's left of the mineral content and residual marrow and things like that. Um, that's what I would do. I, you know, I cannot see wasting that much meat. And if you have a ton of these things, the goose sausage, you could make tons of goose sausage, cure and smoke that. Oh, I'm, I'm envious of your position. And that's what I would personally do. And if you don't want to do it, I would look around and see if somebody else does and say, hey, when you're done with it, can you give me whatever you have left and I'll bury that. At least let them take the meat. Um, a goose thigh and drumstick is a lot of meat, far more than a chicken. So think about this. Every carcass that you throw in the ground that they've done that with, you've thrown away a piece of meat that's bigger than or about the size of four chicken thighs and four chicken legs. You've thrown it away. It's the highest quality protein that you can get your hands on. I'm sorry, I don't understand it. Again, I'm not saying anything bad about hunters that do it. I know some of you guys live in places where you're blessed and you shoot doves the way, like half the number that people shoot, or uh, geese at half the number that we shoot doves. And I, I get that it might be a time thing or something, or you know what have you, but and to not have that gorgeous skin on that bird and not have all the fat that you can render out of that and the value of that, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't understand. And I know somebody's going to email me and go, if you shot six a day for five days in a row, you'd understand. And I'm going to be like, well, maybe I wouldn't kill that many then. If I couldn't handle them, maybe I would only kill so many. Or I would find somebody that wanted to use the part I didn't. Um, and for those of you that end up in hunting situations like this where you have more meat than you can use, there's an organization called Hunters for the Hungry. Check it out. Because there's people out there that would really give a lot to have what you're throwing away. And I'm sorry if I sound negative. I'm really not being negative. I'm just pointing out a reality that we're talking about using protein and fat of the highest quality as plant food. And it's probably not the best use of a resource. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Richard from Alaska slash Idaho. I just had a quick question about augers for insects. And uh, from Alaska, there are really no poisonous insects except for a brown recluse spider, which you rarely ever see. Moving down here to Idaho, there's a host of them. So there's you know, black widows, hobos, brown recluse, etc., we needed to get rid of those in the house just because they're, you know, uh, it was quite infested when we uh, moved in. And so we were going to fog it. But my concern was about the child. Uh, we have a, a, a young toddler, and I just did not know, you know, adults as well, if that stuff is supposed to, you know, it settles somewhere. It's going to settle on ground level, which is where toddlers are most active. And I was worried about the remnants of that insecticide laying around. I was wondering if my questions were, one, is it, you know, okay probably to use as long as maybe if you just laid stuff down on the uh, on the ground because it says lay it across any kind of kitchen areas. And also, uh, is there any kind of perhaps not organic or, or uh, but, you know, just some other way of, handling the spider population other than using insecticide sprays. I have some glue traps and things like that, but the amount that I'm finding 
in the glue traps themselves points me to believe that uh, there's a larger problem uh, than, than I would think the glue traps are going to handle. So I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Bye. Uh, this is going to fall under the category of I don't know, but I think that if you have an infestation of venomous insects in your home, I think the best thing to do is not to fog it, and I'm going to tell you why in a second, and to call a professional exterminator in to evaluate the situation and make decisions. Tell them about your health concerns, but you may be in a situation where you need to do some things you'd rather not do. Spider infestation of a home is an odd thing in reality. It's not very common. We don't have a ton of brown recluse around here, but we have a ton of black widows. Generally speaking, they are not a problem. I have about four living in my garage right now that I'm going to have to take out just because they have eggs, and I don't want a billion of those things running around next year. And when I see them in certain areas, I do kill them. We have never had one inside the house And I find spiders inside my house very seldomly because a spider needs insects to eat. It can't live on air. And generally, predators go where the prey is. So something is always amiss when you have a predatory insect in large numbers in an area where you don't think you have prey. So either you have a lot of bugs in the house that are a problem or you have a lot of spiders in the house that are figuring out how to live without food, which is more likely. Now, on the fogging, you mentioned a spider that I actually think might be a bigger concern for you, and it's possible that you're getting these in your traps and you're thinking of them as the brown recluse, and that is a hobo spider. They're a funnel web species, and this is why I'm going to tell you not to fog this, and I'm going to tell you to get a professional now. And this is where the benefits of watching TV pay off, sometimes even reality TV. There's a TV show called Infested. And it's about huge, massive cases of infestation. People that end up with, like one family ended up with like 200,000 little garter snakes living under their house. And the problem really was they weren't even afraid of the snakes. The garter snakes musk and the stink and uh, what they had to do to get rid of them. And they show a lot of different types of things like this. There was a place, I believe it was Washington State, where they had hobo spiders. And they fogged it. And apparently the foggers killed everything except the hobo spiders, and all of a sudden there were more of them. This doesn't fully make sense to me because, again, they need something to eat. But this house was literally laden with hobo spiders. And fortunately for this family, they had leased the house, and they walked away from the lease. And they just said, you know, because the guy wouldn't do anything about it. Um, so I would be careful if you have a lot of those things around and really think hard before you do something like a fogging. And I would, if you have this spider problem, bring in a professional. The hobos worry me because I saw that one show, and it's about all I know about them. And I do know that their bite is not generally highly venomous, but what it is is highly infectious. And people end up with really bad symptoms from a bite, sometimes a long time to heal because of the way it gets infected. The spider that worries me the most in this trio that you have is the recluse. I have found black widows to be highly non-aggressive, and I also have found that they kind of sit in the web. They don't do a lot of you know running around. Recluses are on the move. I've seen them behave quite aggressively, and their bite is actually substantially more of a problem to deal with if it happens, especially uh, with children. And it's a very necrotic bite. 
And, uh, you know, people think about, well, they're going to die. Well, very few people have ever died from a spider bite of any kind. Uh, it's almost always involved anaphylactic shock, but it doesn't mean it's not a serious problem. So um, I'm going to advise you to get a professional consultation on this. I really am, and maybe more than one, because one person always tells you one thing and one always tells you another, and the one that's being the most straight with you is usually pretty obvious. But if anybody's dealt with a situation like this, again, if you said I see a few of them around here and there, I'd say, you know, kill them and keep an eye on things and tighten up any, you know, loose parts of your home that are letting animals in, and, 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 and you'd probably be all right. But if you're getting significant numbers and you're using the word infestation, I'm going to advise you this is a time to bring in a pro. There's just time, and the reason I played this call was one, I wanted to help you. I mean, if I would have played the call, I would have called you and told you this personally before I would have just deleted this one. And two, it's an important point here that we need to realize there are times that calling in a pro is the right thing to do. And then there's always the extremist that says, well, what are you going to do when you can't hit the fan? Well, then I'm going to deal with it on my own. But while the world works, I'm going to use the resources that are available to best make sure I take care of my family. And that person always seems to, like, drive a car. And, you know, you want to ask them, well, do you have a job to drive a car? Uh-huh. Well, then what are you going to do when the shit hits the fan? Well, it won't matter. I won't have to pay my bills every – never mind. Goodbye. Uh, know when to call on a pro, and I feel like this is that time. Let's take another call. Yeah, it's Greg in New England. Uh, love your show. I have a quick question for Ben Falk of the Expert Council. Um, specifically interested in what he does for livestock feed uh, during the long winter months we have up here in New England. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm in New Hampshire. I am familiar with, you know, the concepts of silage and corn and hay, etc. But those all seem to be um, not the most resilient systems for. Um, livestock such as sheep, uh, cows, etc. Um, and I've been reading Ben's book, uh, The Resilient Farm and Homestead. It's a great book, but he doesn't seem to address uh, what he does to, to keep his livestock through the wintertime. Um, perhaps maybe there are some breeds uh, that tend to put on weight uh, during the summer months um, so that they can go with less food uh, during the winter months. Um, But uh, looking forward to hear from his response. Uh, you introduced me to Ben's work, and I think he does an amazing job. He's definitely an inspiration to a lot of us up here. I appreciate what you do. Uh, looking forward to hear from you. Thanks. Hey there, Jack and everyone else. Ben Falk with um, an answer to the question about uh, overwintering animals in a cold climate. Uh, we're certainly working on this a lot, and it's definitely a weak link in agriculture as a whole, and it's for sure a weak link in our own systems. Uh, that being said, there's a lot of animals that will overwinter just on grass, and we've had success with that um, using sheep, especially Icelandic sheep, and some of the more wild breeds of sheep can, are certainly happy just on grass over the winter. Uh, we've We've had sheep over two winters just on grass with a small supplement of minerals that really helps them go a long way and stay healthier. We use kelp, um, sea-based minerals, 50-pound bag that lasts, you know, multiple years. Um, and then we're actually remineralizing our soil because they're pooping some of those extra minerals out. It's going to our compost, going out back on the land, and during the growing season, it's out back on the land. Also, here, grass is the longest season we have. I mean, a lot of years, grass will grow eight to ten months of the year. Um, 
so we can have the animals out on pasture for you know a very long period of time. Then we're remineralizing all of that time, but there's always a few months at least where we have them. Um, you know, inside, and then we're stockpiling basically a lot of manure for our vegetable crops and our most needy woody perennials. Um, ducks is another issue, and we've started to do what Carol Deppy does, which is grow um, squash and potatoes in part for ducks. Really, we've been starting to grow a large squash crop just for the fowl um, because they can't eat hay over the winter. So that's, we're meeting that, some success with that. Um, we haven't ramped up to the point where we really have enough squash to just use that. Last year, I'd say 75% of their calories came from the squash, and we were able to store some of the squash for the entire year. We had uh, spaghetti squash ready, you know, still on the shelf that were fine come July. And we really only need it to, to get to, like, mid-May when the ducks are starting to get a lot of food from the land around here and geese as well. And the geese are great because they'll put on a lot of weight just on grass. Um, so we'll have more to report on that in a couple years from now in the next revision while we start overwintering geese as far as what they eat in the winter. Um, but I don't think you can beat hay in a barn and live animals as food security. And hay is a very resilient system. I mean, you can get a frost every month of the year and still have a good hay crop. Heck, it might even be better in some places in New England. So any animals that can really subsist on grass alone, which are, are quite a few, have a real advantage over animals that need grain or some grain replacement. So best of luck to you, and let me know how your experiments go on this front. We all need to uh, be addressing the winter storage challenge. I think in general, the best strategies seem to be the same strategies as they are for us, which is put up a lot of abundance when we have a massive amount of energy to harvest in the growing season and store for the winter. And in the realm of animals overwintering, it seems to be hay in a barn as pretty hard to beat. Um, thanks a lot. Hi, Jack. Jim Henderson from Connecticut. I was wondering what your thoughts would be on a solar-powered refrigerator or freezer. Growing up in Honduras on the mission field, we had a kerosene-powered freezer and refrigerator, sort of like what you use in a camper, using the ammonia. I was wondering if you could make a mirror or some type of lens in the hotter climates and use the sun to heat up the ammonia instead of propane or kerosene and use it to cool down your foods. Just a crazy thought. I'd like to hear your comments on it. Thank you, and thanks for everything you do. I believe if it were possible that it would be such an obvious thing to do that it would likely have been done already. Um, I don't think it's probably a very feasible solution for a variety of reasons. If I need to keep things cool, I need to keep them cool whenever it's not cold enough to keep cold storage food cool, which means you know, we're talking temperatures in the 40s and upper 30s, and that's pretty cold. Um, you have a whole night time in these hot climates where it might be 90 degrees overnight. If you're off-grid, you're probably not air-conditioning your house, so you're into other food storage methodologies then. As long as you can get a hole in the ground, you're into root cellaring, and you've got to get deep enough even in the south, you can do pretty well with things like that and other things. My solution to this would be one of two things if you're going to be in an off-grid scenario and you want to do this. One would be to have a... Um, a high-efficiency chest refrigerator or chest freezer 
that's designed specifically to run at very low draw uh, ability and size your solar voltaic and or wind system sufficiently that you can power it. Um, and I would actually say if you can do that with a freezer, make ice, just like Stephen Harris would tell you. Make ice, come up with an ice containment system that you can rotate your ice and get a really high efficient cooler, like a Yeti cooler or something like that, and then take your ice out of your freezer and put it into your cooler and keep your non-frozen foods there and your frozen foods in your, your freezer. Um, that would probably be one way to do it. The other way would be to get a good quality uh, propane-powered freezer and do the same thing. So that your propane is just keeping ice and making ice and, and a little bit of frozen or whatever frozen food you have, and you're using ice then to keep everything else cool. And yes, it's once a day you got to go do it, but it probably beats most of the other alternatives. It is, it is much easier to make ice than to cool air. And ice is really good at cooling air. So uh, I would take more of that approach. I've never heard of anybody being like to do some kind of Frenzel lens solar heating system and use it for heat exchange to create cold. Um, I, I don't think it's very feasible. I didn't send it to Steve because I think he'd just say, no, you can't do that. It's dumb. Make ice. So I'm going to tell you it a little bit less assertively than Steve might, a little less bluntly. Um, but that's, that's what I would do. And uh, if you do have a solar uh, system that you're putting in for an off-grid home, there are very, very high-efficiency chest freezers. Uh, and... You can also, if you just wanted a refrigerator, most of them that are designed for that are designed with the situation in mind and can be set to refrigerator temperatures. You don't necessarily have to you know, use a thermostat and convert them. You also can make a chest freezer, a standard one, as long as you have AC in your solar system, and you should because that is the easiest way to distribute the power and the efficiency is not anywhere near as important as people claim it to be. Um, you can take a standard, and the smaller the better. Right? I know everybody wants lots of space. Hell, I just built a 19.7 cubic foot uh, keyser for, for home brew and additional cold storage and things like that. But I'm on grid, right? Off grid, smaller spaces, easier to maintain. So you can uh, take like an old chest freezer, you can find a Craigslist or something like that, find the hot side, insulate the crap out of the rest of it other than the hot side, and with a small thermostat, like from John Singer Controls or something like that, set it to hold a temperature of, let's say, 40 degrees, and turn that into an extremely efficient refrigerator. And every time you open it, all the cold doesn't fall out. Cold goes down. So it's much more efficient uh, that way. And there's, there's probably some other things that can be done with that. But um, if you put solar-powered freezer or solar power refrigerator into Google, you'll find all kinds of companies that make refrigerators or freezers for these applications, but they're not really solar-powered. They're optimized to work in off-grid situations. Let's take another call. Hi, this call is for Jack or Tim Glantz. I'm wondering at what point I should upgrade my vehicle's electrical system and how it would be accomplished if I'm going to be adding a lot of electronics. The backstory. I want to turn my 99 Toyota 4Runner into a comms truck. I plan to install CB, ham radio, and scanner, along with a couple of floodlights and a dash cam. That seems like a lot of draw on my electrical system, and I'm wondering if I could or should get a bigger battery or alternator to handle the draw. Um, the, the equipment I'm looking at is a Bofang UV5RA ham radio, a Cobra 75 WXSTCB, 
and a Uden Bearcat 500 scanner. Um, also, if you'd like to know if the setup uh, would give me the widest uh, monitoring net, or if you suggest something else entirely. Thank you for your time. Hey, Jack. It's Tim Glantz with, from Old Grouch Surplus with a couple answers about vehicle electrical systems and radios. In reality, everything he listed, unless he plans to go with a whole bunch of lights, should be able to be handled by the stock electrical system with a good battery. Um, the only exception I would make is if you plan to listen for a long period, say you're going to shut the vehicle off and want to listen off the radio, and the way you want to set up your system in that case is to take a second deep cycle battery, mount it in the vehicle, and wire it up with what is called a dual battery isolator. This isolator will allow the battery to charge from the vehicle's electrical system, but anything you hook to it will only draw power from that second battery. So if you park your vehicle and listen to the radios and run the battery low, your regular vehicle battery will still be fully charged when you go to start it. And this prevents you from ending up with a dead battery where you can't start. A second benefit of this system is that it gives you that deep cycle battery that's always charged in your vehicle, and you can take it loose, bring it in your home, and run it just like Stephen Harris recommends, do an inverter to power your house when the power is out. This is different from when you're wiring up for high amp draw applications, such as a winch. If you're doing that, you'll run run both batteries in series, that is positive terminal connected to positive, negative to negative, and not put any sort of isolator between them so that the uh, device drawing all the current can draw from both batteries. But in this case, a battery isolator with a second battery is the way to go if uh, he even needs it at all. But I would try it without it first and see how it works. As for the radio setup, it sounds good and sounds reasonable. Only suggestion I might make is that if his budget allows, consider upgrading that BC500 scanner for one of the Unidum Home Patrols because it has a touch screen that is much easier to read and use uh, when in a vehicle, which will be safer, and because it already has all the frequencies in the database nationwide loaded into it when you're in a vehicle and traveling, and if you're in a strange area, it takes only about 30 seconds to change and load all the frequencies for that area instead of being a pretty time-consuming process with any of the other scanners. But that's the only suggestion I can make. That sounds like a pretty practical setup. Um, the only other thing I'll say is make sure you securely install them. You don't want to just Velcro something to the dash or have it loose because in case of an accident, that scanner or that CB can become a missile that can strike you right in the head and do a lot of damage. Thanks a lot for the call, and keep up the good work. Hi, Jack. My name's Curtis, and I'm thinking about a summer kitchen like our grandparents used to have. With the heat of the summer and not wanting to cook inside, now's a good time to think about designing and maybe building for next year maybe at your homestead or talk to a few people about building a summer kitchen where you can cook clean and do all your cooking and everything outside where it's nice and cool and you're not heating your house up. Thanks for all you do. Have a good day. Bye. I think summer kitchens are great ideas in the right climates. Uh, specifically, those would be climates where maybe you are uh, able to live without air conditioning in the summer or most of the summer, or maybe you're only, you know, deal using uh, some window units in certain rooms at certain points, maybe just for comfort for sleeping, or you know, just in the hottest part of the day, you might run a, a one in, in like the central part of the house, and you're trying to keep that house as cool as possible, and 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 a, a uh, an oven or a stove uh, is quite detrimental to that, and that makes sense to me. Um, in my climate, I don't think it makes anywhere near as much sense. I, through the summer, 
cook 90% of the food on the grill anyway. And I, I'm thinking about setting something up. I would call it like a summer kitchen light. And maybe around here it's more of a spring and fall kitchen when we're in your summer climate is our spring and your fall. And it might make more sense for me that way because here's what I'm thinking. Um, chopping up vegetables, uh, cutting up a salad, doing all the prep work. Um, I'd rather do that in the house, take the food out to the grill and cook it out there than stand out in the 105 degree heat and do it. And I think, so I think it, the, the, this is one of those things like, and the reason I'm bringing this up is it's one of those things that when people hear a certain concept, they think, well, it's universal. And it may be very uh, universally adaptable, but it may not quite be universal. And I think that's the case here, that this is not the greatest concept in the world in, in central Texas. Um, but it might be if it's done for a certain purpose, uh, specifically like we run classes here, so preparing food for classes, we're never going to be doing that ever going to be doing that in the middle of summer. We just don't do classes in the middle of summer. Uh, people want to camp. People want to hang out. People want to play pool in the garage. It's too hot. Um, but the fall and, and, and spring here are very warm during the day and, and cool at night. And a lot of times in certain parts of that time, it's kind of warm, and you wouldn't want a lot of heat in your house But if you don't have the heat in your house, you open the windows, turn on the ceiling fans, and you don't need air conditioning, and why use it when you don't need it? And that time, maybe it works for us, but maybe it's a different, and I'm just thinking out loud here, maybe there's some things you do a little differently with that type of a concept. I do think it makes sense to maybe put in one anywhere in some ways. Um, if you do a lot of grilling, which I do, having a sink out there to be able to use, and all of the other stuff that goes with it makes a lot of sense. I think the biggest place for summer kitchens, though, is when it comes to canning. Uh, that's where you really would like to be able to be outside with it. I, I don't want, because now you're running it for a long time, and you're running it on the stovetop. An oven, an oven doesn't warm up a house that much, right? Because the door's closed, and the heat's in there, and it's designed to stay in there, right? And that's what you want, is a hot oven so the food will cook. Yeah, a big blast of heat comes out when you open it. But when you got a burner sitting on a grill and a, and a big all-American stainless steel thing blazing hot for an hour of pressure canning on something that needs that kind of uh, timeline or whatever, because it's not really an hour, but still, by the time you, it's not just the time that it's running, that it's actually under pressure. It's all the time for the heat to build up. It's after it's done. It's venting the steam. I mean, that seems like an ideal time. Or when you're doing even water bath canning and you're doing like lots of batches, um, it just seems ideal uh, for a summer kitchen. And that's pretty much what my grandmother did. That was just, that was what got done outside. Even in Pennsylvania, she baked and cooked most things on the regular range inside the kitchen in the house. But when it was time to do like you know spend all day canning chow chow at the end of the season, that all got done outside. So I think it's dependent on your situation and your goals. But I think it's a great thing. And I know that where I grew up in the Northeast, they were very, very popular, and for good reason. And I'd love to have one. I just, as I look at the priority list of all the things I want done, it's maybe not as high on that list here as it would be in a northern climate. Anyway, because uh, my, my bigger priority is making sure everything can get water right now. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Brian from Baltimore. I had a question for Steve Harris. It is about the gasifier plans that FEMA released back in 89. 
I was wondering, first of all, is it even worth building? Uh, how large of a generator it would power? I mean, it shows a picture of it powering a tractor. I don't believe it would actually power a tractor with the PTO engaged, but I believe Steve would probably know all the answers and more to that. Uh, other questions would be, do you try to filter the tar? Do you just try to crack the tar? Uh, and then uh, how much wood you actually need to burn in it for how many hours? Uh, and then all the other questions Steve will answer that I'm not even asking. Uh, appreciate it, buddy. You do a lot, man. Rock on. Uh, that's one definitely for Stephen Harris. I'm going to let him take that. And uh, then there's actually another question about wood gasification from a different angle. Uh, and one that, so when this one ends, I'm just going to play straight through the next question. And so Steve's got two in a row here to handle. He's done a great job of, on both of them as usual. And we just had somebody on about building a gas fire with a different angle. So this is cool. We're getting a real education on wood gas and what wood gas capabilities are, how mature technologies are, what's out there, and what's available to us this week. And uh, that's good because it's an it's a highly underutilized highly underutilized resource. There's a lot of wood laying around rotting that could be generating energy uh, with the right uh, systems and for the right motivated people that want to harness that and use it. So, Steve, what say you? And, uh, again, we got two in a row from Mr. Harris here. Brian from Baltimore. This is Steve Harris with the Expert Panel. Thank you for calling in your question. you got a question on the FEMA gasifier. Well, I sell this book. Uh, you can go Google it, and you can find just the FEMA gasifier out there on the Internet, and or you can go get the book I have on my website called Hydrogen Gas Generator for Vehicles and Engines, Volume 3 and 4. I have another book in there with the FEMA gasifier plans that explains in detail all the chemistry and the cracking and what's going on uh, in the system. If you go to uh, USH2.com, that's U.S. as in United States, H2 as in hydrogen, uh, H the number 2.com, click on where to start, and you'll see it there at the, at the top, HGG 3 and 4. It is an excellent book, very well done. It's something your government did produce that is very well. It is very, very worth building. Uh, it is a heck of an education to build one. It, uh, for you, those of you wondering what it is, it's, um, the FEMA gasifier is basically a 55 gallon drum with a trash can inverted on top of it. And you use a solid bowl colander, uh, stainless steel and you hang that with some chain, uh, from some furnace ducting that is attached to the interface between the two barrels. And you pour in wood matter, wood chips, biomass, and it will gasify it. It'll turn the wood into carbon, carbon monoxide and hydrogen. And this can be sucked into an engine and it will run the engine. So that's the basis, basics behind a gasifier. In this case, the FEMA gasifier. So it is very worthwhile building. It is the the book is wonderful. Step by step plans, exploded diagrams, parts list, you name it. It does not get much simpler than this. Now, is it how big of a generator will power? If it's powering that tractor, that tractor is 40, 50, 60 horsepower. It'll certainly power any size generator you're probably going to think of. 
you can hook up a 5 kilowatt, 10 kilowatt generator to it, and it will power it just absolutely fine. The cracking and filtering of the, of the tire in the plans, there are two filters in there, uh, and plus a cooler in there. Generally, you you want to cool the gas, and then you have a rough filter, and then you have a fine filter, and the filter media is like... You know, it's like grass stuffed into a container that you you pass the gas through, and then you pass it through another container that might have sawdust in it to uh, get out some more of the particles. And then that gas goes into the engine because through the gasification process, it does make tires and everything else. But if you run it good and hot enough, it will crack those, and you won't have as much of an issue with your filter material. Yes, it will power a tractor. Yes, it will power a tractor with the PTO engaged. Why the heck wouldn't it? The PTO many times takes up less power than the tractor does plowing down the field. So it would very easily, if you got a tractor and a generator and you want to hook it, the generator hooked up to the PTO and you'll put this thing on it, yeah, sure, you could crank the thing up, turn on the PTO and run the generator with it and run half your farm from it. Now, how much wood does it burn? Well, that's a good question. It all depends upon how much power you are, how much gas you're pulling from it, and that's based upon how big your generator is, and that's based upon how big of a load is on your generator. The general rule of thumb is if you have one of these hooked up to your car and you're driving down the road with it, it takes about one pound of dry wood to get you about one mile. So those are the rules of thumb. And, Brian, yeah, it is worth building. You can go onto YouTube and do uh, uh, search for FEMA gasifier. You can find all sorts of people who have made them. You'll see them with big flames coming out of them. It is something for you to look for. So this is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Oh, Jack keeps on mentioning about how it's a good idea to have alcohol on hand as a trading stock material, and he mentions my alcohol-making materials that I sell, but he never gives the website. It's imakemygas.com. imakemygas.com, and you can see a video of how to ferment alcohol and distill it and everything else. So, again, this is Steve Harris for an extra panel. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Hi, Jack. It's Peter from Pennsylvania, just recently leaving New York uh, to go to my new 26-acre farm in Pennsylvania. Looking forward to practicing permaculture. And I've uh, taken the online PDC course with Jeff Lawton, and it's changed my plans for future life. Anyway, thank you for uh, for that. I came to that through you. And my question was for uh, Stephen Harris. I'm wondering if there are any good ways to get uh, electricity from wood, some sort of a wood-powered uh, solar, or not solar, but wood-powered um, electricity generating device. Um, not sure if there are any efficient ones out there. Um, anyway, thank you, and I uh, hope to hear this on the show. Thanks. Bye. Cedar in Pennsylvania, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Thank you very much for calling in your question. There is one company and only one company on the face of the planet that makes anything that is anywhere near reliable, let alone extremely well proven when it comes to turning wood or biomass into electricity. This would be from a company, a company called All Power Labs, A-L-L-P-O-W-E-R-L-A-B-S, 
www.gecgasifier.org. Uh, that will take you to the geckgasifier.com website. Geck is G-E-K. And you will see the power palette there. They have over 400 power pallets in 40 different countries around the world producing electricity. They come in 10 kilowatt and 20 kilowatt. And 10 kilowatt, I think, is $17,000. 20 kilowatt is $27,000. And that's on a pallet, delivered, ready to go uh, to you. And sorry, it's not delivered. They, they charge shipping, but... Uh, that's installed, I mean, not installed, that's on the pallet, just turn the thing on, add the fuel, and go. Now, the thing is, they are open source. You can go onto the website, and you can get all of the plans for all of this if you want to make it yourself, if you just want to make the gas fire, if you just want to do the engine hookup, you can do it all yourself with uh, their plans. they got cutting diagrams, they have everything. And they even have kits. You can buy kits that you can weld together. You can buy kits that they already have welded together for you. And you name it, at whatever level you want it, they will provide it to you. These people are the experts on the face of the planet when it comes to automated gasification. You're going to have to feed it something from the size of a golf ball to the size of, like, um something larger than a peanut of wood. Uh, that, it likes hunky wood to go into it. Walnut shells, uh, corn husks broken up, uh, chipped wood, stuff like this is what it likes to eat, and it will work really good. So hopefully that will answer your question. Don't forget all of my previous stuff I've done with Jack is at www.solar1234.com. Thanks, guys. Call in some more questions. Bye. Hey, Jack. My name's Todd. I live up here in South Dakota. I have a question for you. I turned on my outside hose uh, yesterday to water my plants, and the water seemed extremely warm, so I grabbed a thermometer. The water coming out of my faucet is 103 degrees, and it seems to be a steady temperature throughout the summer and probably half the winter months. Is there anything I should do to cool that water down before I'm watering my garden or my my trees and plants in general? Uh, any help you can give me would be greatly appreciated. Um, the reason I ask is we had some rain. All the plants seem to be doing great. The rain has stopped, so now I'm back to using my garden hose, and it seems like everything's kind of wilting and not looking as good as it did when the rain was coming. Um, again, if you give me any help, that'd be great. Thank you. I have to say, I find it odd. Um... It just doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense that you would have water coming out at 103 degrees. And the guy did call back, folks, and say that, you know, he let the water run for a long time. And so, so you know it's not just the hose that's, that's heating up the water. It's, it's the water basically coming out of the, of the, the tap itself. It, it's a sustained 103 degrees. Um, so it's odd. As far as watering plants with water at 100 degrees, it's, it's, it's probably not a big deal. 100 degree water is not scalding. It's not, it's not anything, it's not any kind of temperature plants wouldn't deal with on a daily basis. It's probably not the best thing in the world. Let me tell you, that water is going to dissipate heat real fast as it begins percolating through the soil. And that water is not going to be 103 degrees for long as it gets down into the ground and the soil. So, I'd prefer it to be cooler. Uh, too cool can actually be a problem at certain times of the year, too, though, because temperature swings causing stress and all. But it's it's not like 
you know, when I turn on the water hose here and the hose has been laying on the ground, the water that comes out of that hose is not 100 degrees, 103 degrees. It's probably more like 153 or 163 degrees. I mean, it will burn you. I mean, it will scald you. And that, I definitely wouldn't want to use that for irrigation. So I always, if I'm watering with a hose, um, basically vent that water out first like get water that's actually coming from the ground. And my water coming out of the ground ain't nowhere near that hot. So I have a couple things I'd say to do. Number one is the water coming out of the tap in your house, 103 degrees. If it isn't, and it's likely not, somewhere along the way there's some sort of thermal exchange or thermal mass going on. Do you have a well? Or is this municipal water? If this is a well, maybe you've got some sort of you know mild hot spring effect going on, a modest hot spring effect, some sort of geofriction causing this heat, like the hot springs that pour out water uh, at much higher temperatures in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Um, if you have the water coming from the same source, indoors and outdoors, And when you turn your sink water on, that water comes out at, let's say, something reasonable like 75 degrees, and the water coming out outside is coming out 100 degrees, I would start investigating exactly how does that water get to that place where you turn it on. And, man, I just don't see this being possible with you living in the Dakotas. The only way I see that being the case is there's a really long pipe taking it out to that hose bib, and that pipe is really shallow in the ground, so it's up in the part of the ground that gets heated by the sun versus the part of the ground that's protected from the sun. And that just doesn't seem to make any sense to me, because unless you're purging that line and cutting off supply to it, it wouldn't stand a hell's ch you know, a snowball's chance in hell of making it through one of your winters without bursting. You've got to get it down below the frost line. Um, if you lived in Florida and were telling me this, and you had it buried in two inches of sand, uh, and you didn't worry about frost really damaging anything, it would make sense. Some just doesn't, some doesn't make sense here. And I'd kind of like you to call me back, and when you do, I'd like you to email me and let me know you did, because I'd like to follow up on this. I'd like to know, one, is the water coming out of your, your irrigation line the same water that goes into your house? I don't care if the water that's in your house goes through some, well, I do. Let's say the water in your house goes through, like, a water softener. By the time it goes through your water softener, goes through a pressure tank, gets into the house, it could have cooled down a bit. So I'd want to know that if there's a softener on the system, and specifically if there's a softener in a significantly sized pressure tank, even if that's the case, what's the temperature of the water coming out of your tap, right, in your house, and does, does those, those two places, does the water come from the same source, um, if they do not come from the same source, where does one come from, where does the other come from? Two, that hose bib that you're turning, that faucet you're turning, how does the water get to there, and what path does it take to get to there? Is this thing like embedded in some kind of stone wall? And it's still, I mean, it would have to be a massive length for it to last a significant time, more than you know, five or ten minutes at most. Um, but the temperature itself isn't high enough to really concern me, though I'd prefer for it to be low, lower for irrigation. Putting in a tank is not necessarily a bad idea, um, but if it's a tank in the sun, it may well get hotter than that, depending on where you put it. It would need to be shaded or something like that to keep the temperature from going higher. 
Um, but the advantage would be is if you had a tank and you had it elevated and you could pressure irrigate, you have a water reserve if that supply fails, and you you know that's that's kind of cool. But um, I wouldn't necessarily do it just to keep the water cooler. But let's talk about the problem. The problem is you're watering and the plants are not doing as when it was raining. That's a problem for everybody. Unless you have consistent irrigation, especially drip irrigation or soaker hose irrigation, where the ground is kept very wet, and when I say very, I don't mean sopping, I just mean very wet compared to what a, a sprinkler can do or a hose can do by itself because it's a saturating irrigation and the plants don't go through dry, moist, dry, moist, dry, moist, dry, moist because that's what's happening. You're not going to ever see hose is irrigating a plant make it do as well as rain there's a lot of reasons one rain puts natural nitrogen into the ground through the impact in of itself two the water in rain is often ionized and has another effect but here's the big one when it rains it doesn't just water your garden it waters everything okay so everything's wet So it stays wet longer and more uniformly than you watering it, even if you put more water in the same area than the rain did, because the rain put it everywhere. And here's what happens. You've got this dried-out landscape. You've got this garden bed. You water it. It's nice and wet. You stick your hand in there, it's almost too wet. Go back, especially during the heat of the day, uh, just a few hours later, stick your hand in there. Often it'll be very, very dry. Where's the water gone? I've got it mulched. I don't understand. Why is this a problem? Because the surrounding area, let's say you're mulching a 4-foot by 12-foot long bed. You've watered just that. Okay, All the earth around it is bone dry. What happens when you take something that's wet and put it against something that's dry when the two substances are similar? The moisture travels from the wet to the dry. The dry wicks it away. If you take a soaking wet sponge and put a dry sponge up against it, and put another dry sponge up against it, and you put six of them in a line, and you leave them sitting in a line. They can be on top of each other, side by side. It doesn't really matter. When you go back a few hours later, almost all the sponges will be very similar in moisture, however much moisture they have. The, the first one that you soak down might be a little wetter than the rest, but it will have lost a lot of its moisture. It will transmit itself to the dry areas. This is called osmosis. This is why wood mulch, wood mulch, when it's really wet, will take in moisture, and when it's really dry, will release it back into the ground. It ain't magic, it's science. And I guess if you don't know science, science can seem like magic, but it's, it's not magic. It's just the way things work. Uh, it's the movement uh, across a semi-permeable barrier from areas of large concentration to areas of lower concentration. That's osmosis. That's how I remember it from sixth grade. And uh, that's what happens when you're watering an area and the area around it's not wet. Uh, let's take another call. Jack, this is Wayne in Cave Creek, Arizona. And I have two questions for you. One is with inverters, 12 volts going in at 100 watts, is that going to equate to 120 volts coming out uh, AC at 100 watts? Or is there a loss? I can't find information on this, it seems, wherever I look. And the other one is... As far as black powder firearms are concerned, I've heard it said that in an extreme grid-down situation for a long, long time where ammo becomes scarce, it wouldn't be a bad thing to have. Um, I own several myself, and I can see the wisdom in this, but I'd really like to hear what you have to say about it. And this is Wayne in Cave Creek, Arizona, and I thank you. 
It, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. That's not how it works. If you have a battery, you have a certain amount of capacity. And I'm going to give this in the non-Stephen Harris, Jack Spirit goes simple, down and dirty, easy to understand way without all the science going into it and without formulas and calculations because none of that really matters. What matters is how long that battery will last for you. And that can only be determined by how much you're going to pull out of it. And even if that battery has that spec of 100 watts, it doesn't mean that it won't actually produce more watts of AC power through an inverter. What happens is that battery powers that inverter. And as long as that inverter can take uh, enough energy to run at its optimum level, that inverter will run whatever wattage that inverter is spec to run. So if I get myself a little Whistler Pro 1200-watt inverter, and I hook that up to a battery, and as long as it's sufficient that that battery is charged enough and ready to run that Whistler Pro 1200-watt inverter, that inverter can put out 1,200 watts regardless of what the watts stated for the battery are. You're looking at two different uh, types of electricity. We're taking direct current electricity, converting it to alternating current electricity, and putting it in the inverter, and then the inverter is powering the device. The battery's not powering the device, only the inverter. Is there a loss? This is where you get into the efficiency debate. It's really not so much about wattage, but uh, how much how much energy it actually takes to do things. If you want to move power over distance, AC is the most efficient way to do that. If you want just a complete yes, DC can be more efficient than AC if you're doing short distances. Um, and the efficiency becomes immediately lost to the energy necessary for the size of copper cabling. There is energy in building a copper cable when you try to run DC over long distances. So in long distances or you know anything more than a few feet, it starts to add up really quick. So the efficiency comes from AC on moving the energy. And, and you do not really need to worry about that. Again, what you need to do is look at the reserve capacity of the battery and what the battery is able to provide through the inverter is a bucket. So think of your battery is your bucket. It's got a big bunch of liquid electricity in the bucket. And the inverter is sipping the, the, the liquid away. And the more the inverter has to do on the power side of the equation, the more it will sip from the bucket. And if the bucket goes empty, the inverter can't run, so the stuff on the other side of the inverter can't run. So we could have real small low-draw devices, and the inverter might be using more of the bucket water to run its own fan than it is to power the device, right? Um, and, and that would be the case, and it would take a very long time then to suck the bucket dry. So really you're looking at it, from this angle. What you're wanting to know is how to choose the right battery for the application. And the best way I can tell you to do that is get Stephen Harris's videos at Battery1234. They'll tell you more about batteries than I can because they tell you more about batteries not just than I know, but I care to know and I've watched them. Um, if I need to really figure something out, I can go back to them as a reference. I have them uh, on demand from Vimeo. I got them from them that way. And I can go back and look at them anytime I want and I think they're one of the best resources he's ever put together. They're not free, but, God, they can save you some time, money, and energy uh, if you get a hold of those. So I think that is a great product. And uh, the big thing is not how long will it last. It's how are you going to fill the bucket back up. 
That's the most important thing to think about. How are you going to be able to recharge that battery? Now, look at it this way. If that battery's sitting in your car, okay, and you're going to take like an 800-watt inverter and take the alligator clips, pop up the hood, and clamp them on that battery and start that car up every once in a while while you're doing it and recharge that battery by idling the car, you don't have a problem. You don't have a problem at all. There's something I advise people to be very careful with when using that Stephen Harris solution, though. Don't forget about it while you're using it and let the damn thing run your battery down to nothing because it can happen, and now you got a dead battery and a dead car that you can't start and no power. So that's always a concern to think about, and uh, it's why Stephen Harris and I disagree about uh, jump packs or uh, jump starter packs. Uh, Steve says you'll, you'll rely on it. Uh, to do things that it won't be able to do, and then you'll be screwed. I'll say that if they're well-maintained, you keep an eye on them, you make sure they stay charged, and you can get them to jump your car if only one time ever, and it jumps it in the time you needed it to jump it, yeah, that'll help you out. Now, the air compressors in them and stuff like that generally are no damn good, um, but I have to say I've used those before just to get enough air in a tire to get it, out of where it is so it's safer to change it, whereas if you looked at it before you did that, it was so flat you would have damaged the tire by moving the car. So I've, I've seen uh, that little thing pay off, but I would not rely on the whiz-bang gidgets of a jump pack, but man, if you screwed up, killed your car battery, had one of those things, it was charged and you started your car and it could charge the battery back up and you were back in business, it'd be good to have. The best solution for this type of thing, though, of course, is add a small generator to the mix, and a lot of problems go away after that. Uh, you got a good battery charger and a good generator and a car and an inverter. You've got tremendous flexibility, and you don't need a massive generator to power most of the things that are necessary uh, for life. Maybe you might need a little bit more power to power a lot of the conveniences, but what's necessary, you can do a lot with a little inverter in your car. That's why Steve's such a big fan of that. Um, and, and again, it's not about the wattage of the battery. It's about the wattage of the inverter itself after the conversion of the energy. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Mark in New Mexico. Thanks for all you do. I've only been listening for a couple of months, so if you've already covered this, I apologize. I have a couple of directly related questions. I live in the Rio Grande Valley, and even though the drought has the river pretty much dry, our water table, at least as of a couple of years ago, was only nine foot below ground. I'd like to know your thoughts on putting in a manual pump for the well in case the power goes out or our pump fails. Secondly, your thoughts on drilling your own well, especially at our shallow depth. We'd like to put in a good old-fashioned windmill on the new well to be able to use the manual pump during low wind conditions. Even though we use the well for irrigating our crops, these are mainly questions relating to a what-if situation. Thank you, and I look forward to your response. You, you might consider putting in two wells, because uh, it's going to be cheap. It's going to be cheap to put in a well if you only got, you've got a nine-foot water table. You're going to go deeper than that. Um, but, you, I mean, that's... And if you have somebody out there to put a well in for you, and I guess you could do it yourself, but, I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing a well digger loves, right? <laughs> Where's the water table? Nine feet. I'll be right there. Um, if he's already out there, it would probably be cheap to have him do more for you. If you yeah, um, and you might want to set one up as a cased well that's big enough to drop a bucket into it. 
like an old-fashioned well like you see on like Little House on the Prairie or something like that, because that's an always and ever uh, source of water, well, at least unless the you know, water table drops a lot, uh, that has yet another functionality. Um, you could honestly, with a water table like that, put in that kind of well with a backhoe. Uh, definitely with an excavator. You can get deep enough and you can create that type of a, of a well system for yourself. Uh, I probably wouldn't take it on myself because I don't know enough about putting wells in to do that. Um, I will tell you, depending on your soil, you probably got a lot of rock there. Um, but I don't know. Down that far, it might be more of a sand well. Uh, there's a, a way to drill a well where you're just basically driving a... Uh, a, a thing in the ground it can either be done you know with with nothing but basically some water pressure uh, some will actually use a drill a true dr like a but like a big hilti or something like that not a big giant what we typically think of with a well driller my grandparents had a well put in in florida where it was sandy soil and the water table's right about nine feet and the guy did that with basically pipe and and a hose And just basically used that and kept going into the ground. And I think he went down to about 16 feet-ish and put in a typical electric well. And they used that for irrigation uh, versus, you know, they used the grid water for the house. And uh, so there are some easier ways if you have a shallow water table and things like that. Um, as far as a hand pump, with that low of a, of a requirement as far as moving water, yeah. I, I think it makes a lot of sense to... Uh, To, be, to put in a hand pump, I think the windmill is a great idea. And what I would advise you to think about is, is there? A, you're probably in pretty flat country, but is there any way that you can pump water with the windmill at many times of the year when the wind is in abundance into a reserve tank and then irrigate from the reserve tank back to the crops and back to the house? Because if you can do that, you can basically make... We talked about a battery being a bucket. This is a case where it kind of is. A battery is a giant bucket, but the battery holds water. You can move that water up into that holding tank and then move the water back, and, and, and that way you're just moving the water through. You're always keeping it topped off, but should you get to a point where the windmill's not running, you've got all that in reserve before you have to go you know, dropping a bucket or turning a crank or pumping a shaft. Um, those are some interesting things. Now, I would say this as well. Um, You could you could move quite a bit of water um, with a pretty modest pump uh, at that level of head. I mean, if you're only got to have move water 10, 12 feet up to get it out of the ground, you don't need a lot of power from a pump to do that. You're not you know running a half horsepower, one house horsepower uh, typical well pump to get that done. Maybe even just in an emergency situation. I mean. I've got a, uh, a submersible pump in my little system uh, that, you know, with a, with a battery backup system and a, a generator to keep it topped off, uh, pumping water 9, 10, 12 feet high, it's not a huge amount that it's going to do that to, but it's better than cranking a handle. So that might be another thing to think about as well, is especially if you do an open well. Right? Don't let the little Timmy fall down it, but like an open, like a little house on the prairie style, a little well cover over it and everything, bricks around it, you look down, there's water down there. If you can put something like that in, man. And I'll tell you, my Uncle Pete, I'm just remembering this now. I remember this when I was a kid. He had a well that didn't look like anything else I've ever seen before in my life, now that I'm thinking about it. It looked like a little square pond. And that daggone thing had water almost to the top of it at all times. 
And I don't know, I don't know how that thing worked now that I think about it. I have no idea how that thing worked. It wasn't a cistern. It wasn't a pond. Because it was never empty. And I never remember him filling it up. It looked like a pond. It looked like a square pond about the size of, uh, uh, about the size of a small compact pickup truck's bed. Maybe a little smaller than that, like the small compacts, like a little Nissan or a little something like that, old Mazdas, little trucks. Maybe maybe about half the size of a bed. If you cut it right in half on the wheel well, about that big. It came up a few inches above the ground level. That thing was always full of water. I have no idea what that was or how it worked. And I was a kid, I never asked. And I'm wondering what the heck that was. Anybody knows? Tell me in the comment sections. But definitely a hand crank and windmill, I think, are great options for what you've got to deal with there. Hey, Jack, this is Low Watt Living. My question is about the comparisons between 8mm Mauser and 30-06, or 30-06, depending on what part of the country you're in. My father was a Korean War vet, and he has passed within the last few years. And he always talked about the 30-06 and how great of a round it was, yet he went hunting with an 8mm Mauser. And I was wondering if there's a comparison between the two rounds, or he was just biased towards the 30-06. I, I don't know. I was wondering what your uh, answer on that. Uh, it's a question I've had for a while. Thank you very much. Well, it's, it's quite possibly like the gun better because there's not a lot ballistically different between the two rounds. Let me give you some numbers, for example. Um, a 3006 will send a 150-grain round downrange at about 2,850 to 2,900 feet per second. And a, uh, I'm just making sure I'm right. I'm checking my manual here. Uh, and that's, that's what I thought. A 8mm uh, Mauser will send that 150-grain bullet downrange at about 2,915 feet per second. Slight advantage on velocity, but ballistics are a gray area, and that just means that when Spear made the uh, 13th edition of their manual, that's how the numbers worked out, and it very well could have worked out a little bit differently uh, with different barrels on a different day. And that means ballistically, um, from a standpoint of just foot-pounds of energy, they're twins. Some other things we can look at that just show how close the comparison is. Um, the ballistic coefficient of a Spitzer-style uh, uh, bullet I'm looking at here is about 3.89 on the 3006 Springfield, and a similar style bullet is .369 on the uh, the Mauser, and that would effectively negate the slight advantage of feet per second. Ballistic coefficient is the ability of an object to fly. So the higher the ballistic coefficient, the better the object flies, which means the, the, the its trajectory will be flatter, um, which is why the tra trajectory of a spear point bullet is better than that of a flat point bullet, even when they weigh the same and are shot out of the same gun from the same cartridge. So you got a slightly better ballistic coefficient on average for one and a slightly higher velocity for the other. That just kind of negates them. Uh, sectional density, the ability of, uh, of a round to penetrate, uh, sectional density of a 150 grain 30 caliber bullet is 0.226. Uh, 
sectional density of an 8mm bullet, which is about 32 caliber, uh, by the way, is about 205. Uh, so actually, there's a little bit more sectional density from the 30 caliber round because it's longer. So if it spreads its energy out over longer and narrower, it penetrates a little better. But does it matter at, th at those numbers? No. So what would be the biggest justification to choose one over the other? Um, I would say the reason most people would choose to go with the 3006 is that the ammo is more available, first and foremost. And number two, especially as a reloader, you have a whole lot more choice of bullets. There's not that many. I'm looking in the spear manual right now, um, and here's my choices just in grains for 3006. 100 grains, um, 110 grains. 125 grains, 130 grains, 150 grains. Just in the 150 grains, I've got six bullets to choose from in 150 grains from one manufacturer. Uh, 165 grain, 168 grain, 180 grain, and 200 grain. Uh, and that, that works it out for the 06. But I can get 220s and I can get 190s from different bullet manufacturers as well. So I can add all of those to what I can get for, eight mil, for uh, 30 caliber. For 8mm Mauser, I've got 150 grain. They make one of those. 170 grain, they make one of those. And a 200 grain, they make one of those. So the 30 caliber is just so much more popular than the 8mm or .323 that there's a lot more bullet selection. Brings us to something that I'll throw in here for you. There's a thing called the 8mm 06. What is an 8mm 06, you ask? An 8mm 06 is where you take your 8mm Mauser and they're so dadgone close to the 3006 and 8mm in the case dimensions that with a little bit of chamber modification and resetting some things like headspace, don't worry about that means if you don't know, you can, what I'm saying is a gunsmith fairly easily can uh, convert an 8mm Mauser action to be able to fire a 3006 case necked up to 8mm. So now we're taking an 8mm bullet, we're necking up the 3006 case, we're putting the 8mm bullet in a 3006 case. The ballistics between 8mm 06 and uh, the 8mm Mauser are so close that we have to call them absolutely ballistic twins because now we're firing the same bullet. Um, Muzzle velocity of a maximum load of the Mauser, 29.15. Muzzle velocity of the maximum uh, speed of the 06 conversion, 29.81. If you're going to think that like 60, 70 feet per second matters, you don't know ballistics. It doesn't. It's, it's irrelevant. And again, take those two weapons with the same ammo on a different day, and you might get a result where one beats the other by a little bit. Um, though it's pretty consistent that the 06 case gives a little bit more oomph to that .323 round across the board through all the stuff that I've looked at over the years. But they're almost identical. What does that tell us? It tells us that ballistically, the, the amount of powder capacity, etc., between the 06 and the 8mm Mauser are, are very similar and almost identical. So you get a little bit bigger of a hole out of the 8mm and a little bit better penetration through the hole out of the 30 caliber. And they travel about the same speed. So what's the difference? It, death doesn't come in degrees when it comes to shooting a deer or a, a man on a battlefield uh, with similar projectiles. The difference is meaningless. 
Except, again, the 3006, I've got more choices, more potential to find ammunition, greater selection of bullets and components for the reloader. Um, but if I had an opportunity to get my hands on a nice 8mm Mauser or a nice 8mm 06 conversion, would I turn it down? Absolutely not. And might it turn into one of my favorite hunting weapons? Yes. And why might it do that for me? It's different. What do you got there? 8mm. 8mm Magnum? No, 8mm Mauser. Oh, I haven't seen one of those in a long time. Starts a discussion. I don't know why. I'm a guy. We're just like that. We like to have the one thing nobody else has. Um, and then, what do you got there? 8mm 06? What's that? You know, that's that would be really cool. Now, if I was going to do something in this world, um, what I would actually prefer is what's called the 33806. We neck up the 3006 a little bit more from uh, .323 as an 8mm conversion to .338. We end up with a round that's only a couple hundred feet per second slower than a .338 Winchester Magnum and has much less recoil and will take any game on the North American continent, including large bears. Um, and I would feel very confident hunting you know, the largest African plains game uh, with a 338.06. And it's been done, and it's been done well. I actually think it's a better round than the 35 Whalen. And when we step up into that 338 category with the 06, we do see ballistic advantage, significant ballistic advantage. And I'm going a little bit deep with this, but the question becomes why. And it's because we, there's a lot more availability of bullets at 338. Uh, and they go into two and a quarter and 250 grain uh, loads. And those bullets are at a sweet spot. They're at a sweet spot. They have a very high sectional density. And they have very high ballistic coefficients. So even though they might not have that huge of a difference in the muzzle velocity, they have a better retained energy down range. And they're putting a lot more weight Downrange, So that also increases the retained energy. And to me, if you want to talk about a step up, and we're in things like 8mm Mauser, 7mm Mauser, 3006, 308, and you're in that class, you have to move up into that medium bore, 338 uh, area, to see a real significant gain, unless you want to stuff a whole bunch of powder into a belted case and go into the Magnum world. And I don't find it worth it, uh, honestly, in most instances, unless you're taking 500-yard shots at game, it's, it just doesn't seem really to be worth it to me to do that. So there's the difference, and I'm telling you that probably the reason your granddad preferred the 8mm for hunting is he liked the gun or he liked having a little bit of novelty. As we end, why did so many people choose to take their 8mm Mausers brought back as like war, uh, war trophies and, and things and picked up off the surplus market and convert them to 3006? At the time that it was really happening in large numbers, it was not that hard to get 8mm bullets, but it was very hard to get 8mm Mauser casing. The guns came in before the surplus ammo. And the surplus ammo that came in was corrosive and non-reloadable. So a lot of guys that liked the fact that they could get this really beautiful Mauser action and make something great out of it were also tinkerers and reloaders, and it was just easier from an availability standpoint to use 3006 brass. So there you go. There's some history, some ballistics, and a lot of other cool stuff. One more question, and we'll wrap up for the day. Hello, Jack. This is Charles from Western Washington. 
I have a question regarding Antelope batteries that Stephen Harris recommended. I sure love these batteries, and I would love to figure out a system to recharge them day after day with, uh, without any power on the electrical grid. Yeah, it's real easy. We've talked about it a bunch today. Uh, what you want to do is get yourself an inverter, uh, take that inverter into your car, uh, hook up that inverter, uh, put your Antelope batteries in there, and use the car's battery to charge your Antelope batteries. And you can do that a long time. Now, you can get a little bit bigger of an inverter, something like a 400, 800-watt uh, inverter. Uh, pop your hood and hook that onto your, uh, onto your battery. And uh, you can do that and a lot of other things, in, including things like running your refrigerator or freezer, as Steve's talked about before. And uh, you can do all that kind of utility. But if you just want to do small devices and keep things like your batteries charged up, uh, you can get a little you know, 150-watt inverter with a cigarette plug, plug that in a cigarette. They don't run that end-loop charger. The, or not, it's not the end-loop charger. Whatever that charger is. Uh, that Steve recommends go along with it. I've got it. I just can't think of what it's called right now. But I'm going to run over to battery one, two, three, four. I'm there now, and it is the Power X MHC800S eight cell smart charger. It sells for about fifty four dollars and ninety five cents, and it is an awesome, awesome charger. And uh, if you get that and any decent little inverter, uh, you'll be able to keep AA batteries charged for a long time. Uh, a five-gallon reserve supply of gas for your car, and that thing—it's uh, such a, a low, you know—you have so much more battery power in uh, your car battery than eight AA batteries have that you have so much uh, ability to dump and exchange that energy, and it takes almost just hardly any idling at all once in a while to not really have to worry about deadening your car battery, that that's the most efficient, easiest, and simplest way. Uh, any of this stuff that is like, you know, the solar battery chargers and all, I don't hate solar. I, I don't think solar's a bad idea. And you can certainly set up a little 100-watt solar panel and a couple batteries and, and an inverter and all and, and do plenty of AA battery charging with that, but it's going to cost a lot more and be a lot more work, and this is dead simple. And dead simple's good in situations where you're already stressed out. And I would note, too, that like these 400, 800-watt inverters, almost all, well, the 800 watts not all the time, but the 400 watts always have uh, a DC power plug that will go into your cigarette lighter. Now, it's true that if I hook that 400-watt inverter up and stick it in my cigarette lighter and plug something in it that's going to draw like 250 watts off of it, it won't run or more likely it will pop the fuse that runs the cigarette lighter because I'm asking for too much. I can get 125, 150 watts through there. But this thing doesn't pull that much. So if I took my 400-watt inverter and plugged it in there and I was only doing things like charging AA batteries and charging cell phones, I can do that all day long. And, you know, I mean, if we look at the amount of power necessary to run that charger uh, versus the amount of power that's available from, uh, in, you know, an even modestly idled vehicle, it's, it, it, they're so far apart that it doesn't even really matter. I mean, yeah, I guess if you hooked it up and you let it run for, for days and days and days and days, uh, you, you could, you know, and never idled it, you could deaden it just with that. Uh, but a well-maintained battery, it, it, it's, it's almost infinite. Um, certainly, 
uh, if you're trying to rely on uh, doing this for emergency situations, power outages the last couple of weeks and things like that, uh, you've got an almost unending supply of AA batteries. Uh, if you're talking about long-term, you know, collapse society grid down, you've got to move into more complex systems than that. And most of these little plastic chargers and things like that are probably not worth the money. But on the other side of it, you know, if it's all you got, it's all you got. It, it really is. And, you know, to be honest with you, if you get um, some of those lawn lights, the solar lawn lights, you know what I'm talking about, you stick them in the ground and they charge up, uh, I would not make a regular practice of charging your good batteries with those, but as long as you were to put them out every day, go outside, take the batteries out of them before the sun goes down, and give them two or three days of that, they're going to put a pretty good charge on it, and uh, those things are dead cheap now at Walmart and what have you, um, but I would save the cheap low-end batteries for that application, they're designed to run in those things. But if you wanted a way to make sure there might be some extra batteries around, that might be one way to do it and have a multifunctional thing. But the easy answer is an inverter for your car and a good quality smart charger like the one Steve recommends. With that, this has been another episode of the Survival Podcast with Jack Spirico, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution.